This podcast represents my opinion and the opinion of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I am not establishing a patient-physician relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions you may have. Welcome back, everyone, um, to another episode of the Not Your Doc podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa, and today Dr. Tadros and I are joined in the Midwest Institute for Hearts and Minds studio by a very special guest. Yep. Um, today we've got Dr. Tadros' co-founding partner at the Ketamine Clinic, Midwest Institute for Hearts and Minds, Dr. Vafa Frugi. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So excited to be here. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to the podcast that you sponsor. Oh my gosh. It's nice to have you here. <laughs> Check out what's going on. That's your right. Looks good so far. Right. That's awesome. Check under the hood. Yeah, for sure. So um, today we're going to take a little departure from our normal non-ketamine related content. I think we sort of said from the outset that like mm-hmm. this podcast is mainly not going to be about ketamine. That's right. Um, but today we're going to talk about ketamine and Dr. Tadros and Frugi are going to tell us about uh, Midwest Institute how it came to be, um, and we're going to hear more about the work that they're doing providing ketamine treatment to patients in St. Louis. Um, I think this will be a really useful opportunity for our listeners who are either friends of people who have been mm-hmm. patients with us, our current patients, prospective patients, to sort of get an overview directly from the co-founders' mouths about you know what we do here, the purpose behind it, the yeah. results we're seeing. So I'm I'm looking forward to that discussion with y'all today. It's a nice opportunity for us to for Vafa and me to review how we got here. Yeah, do a little reflection. That's right. We love well, that. If I remember correctly, and Chuck, you're gonna have to fill in because of my memory about this. But it it's all started with you giving me a call saying that, hey, can we meet at Starbucks? Uh, I want to talk about something, and I was wondering what is he gonna talk about. Now we've been friends since med school in the. In 1990, and we've met together. Mm-hmm. So at SLU, you get, mm-hmm. you met at SLU Medical School. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We, went, yeah. Cool. We, went, we went, Vafa was from Utah, the great yeah. state of Utah, and I was from Illinois, and uh, and we went to school together at St. Louis University School of Medicine. They, <laughs> the, re, big, re, the big city. That's right. <laughs> this is, uh, so we went there from 86 to 90. Vafa was in a hip crowd that I didn't speak with. Oh, to, or they didn't I don't know about me. that. I have the opposite memory of but, that. But anyway, <laughs> but we didn't. We we are. Well, we you know we just were colleagues. We were. Uh, we did not. We were not buds and chums. We met occasionally <clears throat> as a, a group of alumni in, in town. We would right. grab dinner once right. in a few years. Okay. And right. uh, we had we crossed paths a few times at uh, Barnes and Nobles. That's right. Uh, seeing each other work on different things. We're both kind of entrepreneurs at heart. Yeah. Uh, we have dabbled in many many different businesses. And I think that kind of was one of the key ingredients of getting the ketamine clinic started, having right. that passion and fire inside us to do something different. Uh, we stayed, yeah, we stayed after med school. You had to do residency. I stayed in town for internal medicine. Vafa stayed in town for, for anesthesia. Afterwards, we stayed in, t- in town for practice. And so we, right. we continued meeting with each other as friends and uh, with other group uh, members. And it turns out that it happened to be that. I don't know if it was it was NPR or some some uh, CNN, but I, I had uh, read something and, uh, and about about ketamine. My mother back in the seventies, uh, uh, we used to drive from Southern Illinois to St. Louis uh, to get ECT because she had bipolar disease and severe mm-hmm. depression, and so 
Uh, I, as an internist, I was always interested in mental health. Uh, I never could separate it from the rest of my patients' needs and problems. Mm. And so this was another tool. It just happened to be that about about 2014, uh, we, uh, we were hanging. Uh, you know, I was I, I saw something like I said, CNN or NPR, mm. and uh, and I uh, and ketamine. I'm a physician. I, I had not used ketamine myself, except actually we used uh, animal studies back in the old days. Uh, ketamine. Uh, for animal studies, and it is a, it is a dissociative anesthetic, but it's an as initially is an anesthetic mm-hmm. for for veterinary medicine anyway. But it's been used for uh, humans for decades uh, around the world, and it just happened to be another tool. It was very uh, novel. So um, this was 2014 then. 2014. Okay, and so yeah. you heard something about it in mm-hmm. the news or whatever, and so right. you called Dr. Frugi. Is that how that worked? Right, I think it was early 2015. You called and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, can I talk to you?" I had no idea what you want to talk about. Right, you sit down in the corner at Starbucks and says, "Hey, have you heard about ketamine?" Uh, yeah, I've used it a few times, uh, doing trauma cases yep. uh, in the hospital when uh, we couldn't use other anesthetics. It was a good agent to use in those situations. And I said, "No, and that's all the only time I've used it." Uh, and he said, "What about this?" And he continued to talk about. Uh, mental right. health and issues in your family, which, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my grandmother mm-hmm. um, had mm-hmm. um, you know, ECTs long-term for depression. She mm-hmm. lost a son, and she never recovered from mm-hmm. that uh, with her depression. So that was present in our family. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm here for you. I thought I was going to be more of an advisor, consultant to you, <laughs> whatever project you were going to do. And, uh, right. um, and then we walked away and said, we developed some tasks to do. That's right. I was reviewing our emails and the text back and forth, and we kind of got excited. I got excited because now we've got things to do and on uh, uh, a uh, venture. And about 10 days later, my brother calls me. He's a pharmacist in Utah, has a little company. And, hey, how you doing? Fine. He says, hey, what do you know about ketamine? I said, well, well wait a minute. 10 days ago, somebody <laughs> asked me, hey, what do you think about yeah. ketamine? What are you talking about? He said, well, nurse, some nursing home has asked us to <clears throat> mix some ketamine up for them for some depressed patients. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to wait a minute. This is too weird to yeah. have this in a matter yeah. of 10 days. So really got serious after that. And then the next started, phase of our research started. Yeah. So you started reading articles. There's popular press, but you have to look at some of the scientific articles. Sure. Uh, you know, ketamine was developed, uh, I think it was Park Davis. Uh, it was initially uh, in Europe. Um, and it was a derivative of PCP, uh, uh, angel dust. Angel, angel dust, yeah. Which was it was supposed to be. They were going to you try to use it as um, an anesthetic, but uh, angel dust uh, back in the old days it gave too many uh, uh, weird experiences. Intense psychosis, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like hallucinations, right. hallucinations whole, and stuff. Like, so they yeah. were trying to develop a, a cleaner product, what they call cleaner, uh, pharmaceutically okay. cleaner in, in terms of the side effects. And so they developed it, and it became a vet med drug, and it came to the states, and eventually it was used like a lot of vet med drugs uh, was a part for human for 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 work uh in humans and the great thing about it was it was very safe to use um, um you, it doesn't depress respirations it doesn't um uh, it doesn't uh, uh remove the gag reflex a protective reflex to protect your airways mm. um and uh, which is a big problem with whenever you use anesthetics um uh, um, but anyway, and it supports blood pressure. Right, uh, as, as elevates blood pressure as opposed to drugs. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, and, and it's it's actually a WHO uh, uh, necessary drug. It's used in military. It's used for pediatrics. It's used in burn units. Uh, so it's used uh, it's used widely 
for many decades. Um, 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 so it was, had a nice safety profile. Mm. Um, but anyway, so people accidentally, over many decades around the world, people accidentally found that if somebody went under uh, anesthesia, under ketamine anesthesia for a major surgery or procedures, they'd wake up and if they were previously depressed or, mm. or previously had uh, neuropathy, nerve problems, is another thing that's used for nowadays is for chronic, certain types of chronic pain, that they would wake up and for days to weeks, they would be less depressed or less pain. So it was a accidentally found and they eventually decided you did not have to knock people all the way out to, uh, to, to get these get benefits. Yeah. And so if you use small doses repeatedly, and then you could potentially help people significantly. It was another tool. It's a, it, it works uh, through um, neurochemical, neuro, uh, the neurochemical process that's glutamate, which is the, 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 uh, the excitatory, the main excitatory uh, neurotransmitter in the brain. So it works differently uh, than, than SSRIs, uh, like the Prozacs and yeah. Zolofts and Paxils, and works different than the SNRIs, like Cymbalta uh, and Effexor. So it was another tool, but the great thing about it was that uh, the, the, that, that uh, people would not use it outside. You, you, you could do it in the clinic, and, uh, and you don't have to give them anything outside. Uh, so all the side effects that you typically would get with an antidepressant that might be helping them, or oral antidepressant, if you can give it just as, as an IV, <clears throat> that's how we started using it, because that's how it's being used, <clears throat> and we could talk about that in a second, that people would not have all the side effects of the drowsiness and the appetite and all sorts of stuff like that. Sure. So, yeah. So I guess I want to back up and ask you, Dr. Fergie, is was ketamine frequently being used in anesthesia or was it kind of like a special case? I, I think I used it in, uh, I guess, my 11, 12 years at that trauma center, uh, maybe three times. Okay. Um, and uh, So did really, you ever directly observe that antidepressant oh, effect in your patients? No, because we didn't follow patients long okay. enough afterwards, yeah. but I did uh, uh, observe uh, the, the, the extreme dissociative mm -hmm. effect of sure. it. As, as some of these patients were, um, you know, taking back to the recovery room, waking right. up, uh, they would really freak out. Yeah. Um, I had one patient start screaming on the way to the recovery room, incoming, incoming, VC, VC, incoming. Oh, wow. And he had a flashback to his Vietnam era wow. yeah. uh, time. So uh, there was, un unlike other uh, sure. anesthetics as they woke up. So sure. I and those are, and this is like an actual anesthetic dose of, of ketamine, whereas mm -hmm. you know the way we use it in our office would be a sub-anesthetic oh, amount, right? Yeah, okay, lower. much lower doses. Lower. Yeah, we use that ketamine not as necessary maintenance of anesthesia, more of an induction to start okay. the takeoff of anesthetic uh, because that's the most vulnerable period as far as when, let's say, you have a trauma patient. Right. Uh, because you really uh, depress a lot of things for a short period of time mm -hmm. to re achieve that kind of cruising altitude of anesthesia. So that induction agent hung around and the effect of that dissociation Got it. Mm -hmm. was observed at the tail end of it. That's interesting. So um, how, so you guys both kind of agreed that this might be an interesting tool. Did you like attend meetings or conferences or anything mm -hmm. to yeah. learn more about how it was being well, used? Well, I'll, I'll say a piece of it because, you know, you did, I think, a lot of the research. Yeah. Uh, but we kind of researched for about a year, actually. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we went to the first... Um, yep ever, if you will, um, a ketamine conference that was um, um, for ketamine providers, and mm -hmm. we were one of 12, and we were not a ketamine provider. We yeah. kind of got ourselves in with kind of being nice and uh, had right. an inside friend, if you will, a doctor from Boston who was extremely mm -hmm. helpful. Like she she had a lot to do with us getting started because yep. uh, often doctors, when they're studying, starting a venture on their own, they don't want to share too much information. Sure, you know, yeah. They say, hey, I created all this work and templates and recipe, if you mm -hmm. will. It's like a restaurant. I'm mm -hmm. not going to give you my recipe away. But this uh, mm -hmm. 
doctor was extremely helpful, extremely helpful. Right. We reached out, you reached out to a I number didn't. of places, yep. uh, dozens, and nobody would respond to a you. Couple, this lady uh, that, Yep, one of the anesthesiologists from Boston, like you said, and uh, Isabel, and uh, and then one of the anesthesiologists from uh, Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and Portland, so the, yeah. these were mm-hmm. these were physicians that you knew were using ketamine to treat mental health de- de- issues and chronic right. depression okay. and, and anxiety okay. and neuropathic pain. Gotcha. That's right. So they kind of um, once again, what what had happened, unlike. FDA-approved products and mm-hmm. what, how we use ketamine and all the people in the United States use ketamine for depression, anxiety, et cetera. It's called off-label use, off-label from what the FDA has approved it for. It's FDA approved it for anesthesia. We're using it for non-anesthesia purposes. So it's it's legal, it's common mm-hmm. um, uh, for all sorts of products, anti, right. uh, antidepressants, uh, anti, uh, anti-seizure medicines, all sorts of products. But it's not a um, standardized treatment the same way other, right. other medications So are. what okay. happens, unfortunately, whenever you have a product like this, which is many years, so it's, therefore it's generic um, and it's off-label, is that nobody wants to spend money to do the expensive big right. trials to get FDA approval for right. depression, et cetera. So, uh, so, uh, so what, what comes out is that we get kind of a consensus. We, yeah. we do pra- best practices. And so we learn from other physicians. We go to meetings and see how it's used, et cetera. But there's no humongous studies that uh, qualify for FDA approval for, for treatment for depression or anxiety or PTSD, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, People around, it turns out when we went to the first conference in San Mateo, a little south of San Francisco, that uh, uh, it turns out that people for years had been using it for all sorts of conditions. And the people were include ER physicians, ICU mm. physicians, uh, psychiatrists, anesthesiologists, uh, pain, yes, yeah, uh, pain management specialists. So people throughout the world, we had people from New Zealand, eventually when we kept going to meetings, um, people from New Zealand, people from Russia. Uh, so people have been, uh, people, uh, one of the physicians from Florida <clears throat> uh, that we went to uh, the first couple of meetings had been doing it for 20 years as an anesthesiologist wow, for yeah. pain. So uh, so people had kind of pieced it together on their own sure. and read some literature. <clears throat> and so that's what we were doing yeah. much later than these uh, these. Uh, uh, these uh, kind of uh, leaders. Sure. But anyway, yeah. well, was it a daunting task to consider doing something like this here in in St. Louis? We we're probably not yes. known as being the most you know pr- progressive city in we, terms of using you know mind altering substances to treat disorders. Well, so the good news is is that it's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's an, it's used by the medical profession for, for anesthesia, so it was known for safety, et cetera, like that. Uh, um, and at the time that we started looking, WashU was doing a study like a 97-hour continuous IV, IV infusion for depression mm. in inpatient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very small study, and uh, that was about the time that we were looking into it mm-hmm. uh, back in 2014, 2015. And we finally started in 2016. Uh, but but uh, what, what I recognize is that when we talked to our insurers, they did not know what we were talking about. Yeah, and yeah. So, and of course, the the uh, the um, the uh, drug supply companies uh, are used to you know doling out small amounts to anesthesia groups uh, and, mm-hmm. and for, that use and it vet- infrequently right, for and, trauma cases yeah, and, and okay and veterinarians and that stuff like that. So that was uh, there was a there was a shift a paradigm shift in the United States. I have to tell you that uh, you're, you know Midwest and conservatives. That that was never on my radar. Yeah, you know, okay. You know, we we live. It's like we live in neighborhoods. We live in sure, uh, small yeah. areas, and I never felt that there was going to be any pushback or any kind of image issues, things Good. like that. So mm-hmm. that is absolutely not. I mean, hypothetically, I could see that if sure. someone wants to say, "Oh, you're progressive," or Portland. Can, maybe it started there. I don't know, but 
I never for mm-hmm. a moment felt like, oh my God, this is Midwest. We can't do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but uh, I will tell you, uh, you know, I was a little paranoid just because, you know, here's a street drug. Um, it's really not known. Um, I, I felt like, and it, it was proven later that not too many psychiatrists necessarily were supportive of it for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at least the bigger names or the leaders mm-hmm. of the society. If well, you were. maybe they just weren't as familiar with it, right? It was really new to everybody. I think partially not familiar, but partially they just, no, this is not mm-hmm. in our way of thinking Armor. and pharmaceutical right. pipeline. Sure. And let's be honest, you know, I, I don't want to be cynical, but you know, th- this is a very cheap drug. Right. And uh, so there's, there's a lot no of forces yeah. mm-hmm. lined up against it. So... Um, I was paranoid. I was a little nervous. You know, I, I just kept thinking someone's going to, if we open this, we're going to have a line of people who are going to abuse it standing mm-hmm. in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the DEA is going to come through. And I do remember, mm-hmm. again, doing a little bit of research for this. I wanted to call DEA myself. I wanted to take the load. So I called the DEA and I found the email that I wrote to myself oh, yeah, yeah. about the car and I sent it mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. I have the agent's name. So I called and waited online and the DEA agent came on and I said, this is what we're doing. He said, no, what is it? And what are you doing? And it was a lot of questions. I spent time educating That's right. him. Them, yeah. And That's great. I already knew everything he was going to tell me. He said a couple of things that um, obviously um, were important and was not directly, but uh, on my radar, you know, the way the ketamine has to be locked up and so on and so forth, which is by the books, if not more, mm. but also hours of operation, security to the access to the place, so on and so mm-hmm. forth, which was already established. Sure. But I made sure that I mm-hmm. started talking to the agent because that was my worry. Yeah. That as soon as our name got, uh, you know, we were going to be abused sure. by not up and up uh, individuals. And then also people were going to say, well, what are you guys doing? You selling yeah. what in the parking lot? Yeah, uh, yeah, Things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. The nightmare that you hear on the news. Unfortunately, when, when Vafa says, you know, a street drug, it's uh, any, any drug that's prescription eventually, that's this controlled substance eventually makes it its way to the yeah, streets, absolutely. whether it's it's uh, it's, uh, uh, it's directed uh, from original manufacturers or people make it elsewhere, mm-hmm. fentanyl, um, oxy, et cetera. Sure. So that's one of the things. So fortunately... Um, uh, because the way we use ketamine, uh, which is uh, just the two physicians in our in the office, and we don't prescribe it for anything or anybody right. else uh, outside the office. It's and very so, secure way to yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, it was very. We we kept kept everything very tight, uh, tightly controlled. Sure. Okay, so once you decided to jump in with both feet, what what were those early days at the at the clinic like? Where were your patients coming from? What were their mm-hmm. what kind of things were you treating for them? Well. Um, the lead up to our first patient was, um, you know, any kind of business, the challenge is not the big questions. Mm. It's the little questions. So if you're opening a restaurant, it's what kind of stove we're going to buy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not like what's going to be the menu. We're going to have sure. Italian food and that's easy. But so there was a lot of, as mm-hmm. I was, again, reviewing our, our path to here, there was a lot of little questions I had to uh, we go through. And uh, that was kind of rough. Um, yep. Waiting uh, for equipment, choosing the equipment. Uh, from a legal accounting, you know, supplier, so on and so forth. So that took a while. You know, the, I was again reviewing it. One of the hardest things, <laughs> at least for uh, from my point of view, was <laughs> to sound silly, but finding the right chair and recliner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, for the balance of comfort and safety and patient accessibility and so on and so forth. We couldn't put a gurney. That's cold. Sure. You know, but gurney is the ultimate. We can patients flat. Mm-hmm. So. 
I have lots of pictures of myself going to different furniture stores <laughs> and laying on it and having the salesperson take a picture of me, see what I look yeah. like and how I fit and so on and so forth. So it was hard find the chair. So to give patient like anyone who's listening to this a, a mental picture of our of our clinic in case mm-hmm. you're not familiar, patients during infusions are in private patient rooms and they're seated in a recliner mm-hmm. and hooked up to their IV during the infusion. So sure. it's important for them to be somewhere stable and comfortable but also mm-hmm. you know accessible, accessible by our, for you guys. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I remember the first patient actually. It was a patient of yours, That's a, right. a lady who she was. Um, and I do remember in the corner of my eye, you were you were concerned, rightly yeah. so. You didn't know what to expect. <clears throat> That's right. And you were in the room and uh, kind of watching, standing by to help. I remember Kate brought her in and uh, put the monitors on and everything worked okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blood pressure <laughs> yep. on and so on. Uh, and uh, definitely want the, the first IV to go in well. You can never predict what kind of uh, hurdles you're going to face. So, you know, in order to start an IV, uh, normally your patient is on a bed, very accessible. But, you know, on a recliner, it's a little different. It's difficult to kind of get close and have mm-hmm. access to the arm. So, but the, arm, the IV fortunately went in very easily. And um, we started uh, kind of a background light and music and uh, infusion started. I do remember looking at you and... You, there was a huge load off of your face, and you mm-hmm. almost surprisingly stack, uh, slash shockingly said, well, that went easier than I expected. <laughs> so I think you were expecting a little bit more drama, if you will. Yeah. Now, yes. obviously, it was normal to me. Here's a patient. Let's start an IV, get yes. some drugs. Um, and yes. I see it. You're being kind of concerned, but uh, it was this a is, huge weight lift off you. That's right. This is an outpatient office setting, and uh, and uh, it went uh, extremely well. And we've been, we, 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 with a lot of planning, a lot of, uh, of good staffing, we, we've done extremely well for six years now of yeah. Giving, mm-hmm. giving, yeah, 2016 is when we yeah. started. Yeah. End, of November, t- end, of, yeah. end of 2016. Yeah. So, at that time when you all first started, this was in Dr. Tadros, this is in your former primary care practice space, right? It's, which is the current one. Which is actually. the current, it's right. still the, the current space, That's right. right? That's right. Um, but you were dedicating what, like one room, we basically? Had, we had one room. One or- well, you know, the, when I told you about the chair being a challenge. Yeah. The other challenge before this was finding a space to do it. Yeah. We looked at many, again, looked at pictures that we've taken. We did a couple we of years. At, yeah, a couple of years. We looked at many spaces, uh, all sorts of things, collaborating with other people, getting our own space, so on and so forth. And, uh, yeah, we had some front runners, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. And then one day out of the blue, I got a gift from heaven. Chuck said he's gone to his own office. That's right. <laughs> going solo I, practice. I, I, go. I've been part of medical groups for many years, and I've decided to get a space, and I just chose a space that had extra room mm. that I would not need for my primary care mm-hmm. practice, and it worked out well. Yeah, and then we started taking one of your four uh, That's right. One of, your four one rooms, of the four exam rooms. Uh, and four then exam rooms, and uh, eventually went to we two. paid... Uh, yeah, we paid a quarter of the rent. That's right. And so, you know, as a side, anyone trying to start business, my advice to any entrepreneurs out there is the, the number one key uh, reason to succeed is to control your costs mm-hmm. up front. And mm-hmm. it's going to be very hard mm-hmm. because you're going to be full of hope and excitement and joy. And let's spend here and let's spend there. How much is another hundred here and there? Control your costs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, so we were fortunate to be able to effectively have a great clinic beautiful setting mm-hmm. uh, but really pay a sublease a, a, a small right. amount so That's we right. got big a big space expensive space for really a small amount and 
uh, the labor cost was mm -hmm. zero because I was the Just only person. Trying. I didn't take any money home. <laughs> so I guess controlling costs, labor, no labor costs, minimal rent. You right. can't fail. That's right. That's awesome. You can, you can go through hardships pretty, pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. So um, let, let's talk like the first like, couple of years where you just in a couple of rooms still and kind of like a handful of patients mm -hmm. would be in the treatment pipeline at a time. Is that kind of how it went right. for so a we while? We did two days a week. We did Wednesdays and Saturdays um, mm -hmm. and uh, one room, just mm -hmm. you know, me doing me doing one after the other, hour and a half slots. And I do remember like like a busy day would be like oh my god we have four patients you know, <laughs> which is you know yeah uh, that's six hours but it's a super um, light day for us now yeah, yeah. right uh, more like two or three cases and um, one of the interesting things that now makes total sense but back then we never um, could predict it and this is another thing about doing a business you think you know everything uh, you don't until you know you start mm -hmm. doing it either the first day or first year mm. is Again, our volume uh, was a lot of new patients. I we really never thought that we're gonna have maintenance infusions and yeah, booster yeah, infusions, yeah, yeah. things yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, we we knew about it, but we didn't we think didn't it was, it was we didn't a, think it was gonna be yeah. real or, or or a major portion Component, of our business. Yeah, it right. turned out yeah. to be a major portion. So when that started coming on board, our Wednesday Saturday wasn't gonna work because we had these kind of series that were kind of had to stay in rhythm. Uh, and cannot be interrupted when and we can talk about mm -hmm. that later. Yep. But then we have all these patients who would call us and need a maintenance infusion. Where do we put them? Well, let's start a third day. Mm -hmm. So that's when Mondays came and they were supposed to be exclusively for maintenance infusions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how Mondays come. So we started yeah. expanding mm -hmm. basically by 50% going from two days to uh, three days. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Uh, and then we went to a second room by then, you know, so... Right, There's so kind of, organic growth, as they call it nowadays. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So where, um, you know, let's kind of jump forward to how you describe the clinic now. What, you know, um, this is the, the longest running ketamine clinic in, in St. Louis. I know you've the got a way of describing it. Yeah, right? the longest yeah. continuously running ketamine clinic in St. Louis uh, for... I, yeah, for IV, and, and mm -hmm. now we added intramuscular ketamine about a year and a half, about a year and a half ago. So we do IV and IM uh -huh. um, ketamine, and we started, yeah, we started six years ago with the IV, and a year and a half ago we added in the intramuscular during during the pandemic. Do we have like a ballpark idea of how many infusions we've done over that time, or how a total over, number of patients, uh, like since we opened? Yeah, I'd say about over three thousand. Yeah, definitely over well, three thousand. Well over three thousand. Well yeah. yeah, that's a a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. A lot of <laughs> IV starts. Yeah, a lot of IV starts for sure. And then a lot of you know a lot of clinics um, came, were there. Uh, I think before us, they came online after us, but like I said, for various reasons, they did not succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we again we have a number of reasons we are very successful, uh, and we can touch on that later. But I I know why the the other clinics failed. I think. They just didn't look at it correctly through a business uh, lens, if sure. you will, and didn't do the things that they needed to do. So, but those, you know, we had a luxury, like I said, low rent, no labor cost, mm -hmm. and it, it, really a labor of love. I mm -hmm. think uh, mm -hmm. I was lucky to find Chuck because a lot of similar personalities were kind of uh, strangely passionate uh, about what we do, and 
our most valuable resource, our time. We are very, I'd like to say, we're very generous with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I, I would refer patients to Dr. Tadros as an internist, they would come back to me and say, oh my God, he, he has spent so much time with us. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a key, secret ingredient that nowadays absolutely. is so hard to come by. Very so hot commodity. We had a very good and compatible personality and that that's what it takes to succeed you know yeah. in a kind of partnership if you anything restaurant and you, you can't early on you can't hire that out you have to spend it it's your it's your own time yeah you, yeah. Can't, you can't give that time you can't hire it away that early right. for sure so um where where do we see the majority of our patients coming from now Word of, word of mouth and some of the psychiatrists. <clears throat> I think a lot of self uh, kind of driven research, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at least anecdotally. Um, you know, we, sure. we, we looked at that data a while back, but I think it may be time to look at it again. Uh, the the field changes, it seems like, so much. And, right. Um, but anyway, to me, I think our number one is self, you know, people doing a lot of research. People in many areas in healthcare taking ownership of their own treatment and healing. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, it's good. Sometimes it does go kind of sideways for patients, but I think a lot of our patients come with their own uh, kind of. So, so they do a Google search. It's typically ketamine in St. Louis, yeah, or depression and ketamine yeah, in St. Louis, depression, um, and then mm-hmm. the, the, you know often they check in with their mental health providers, mm-hmm. kind of get validation, uh, which is what we kind of insist. We we, 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 do, we don't want to have a patient de novo coming in. We certainly have turned patients away who, uh, as a first line have um look for ketamine sure. we want, we, yeah, this absolutely. is treatment this is treatment for treatment resistant depression for example absolutely which it's not mean, a first line of defense that's right we we want as i whenever i consult i've done 100 percent of the consultations myself mm-hmm. uh, to, for when we first meet new people face to face or zoom during mm-hmm. the pandemic is that I want to make sure that they have a team, which includes oftentimes a primary care physician, therapist, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. one or more of these. Uh, um, and uh, because, like I, uh, like I said, I, we narrowly use our tool, um, our time, and, and the ketamine. Uh, and so I want to make sure, as an internist, I want to make sure their whole care, sure. not just, uh, which includes comprehensive care of the mental health and all the other medical problems which do impact on mental health and chronic pain. I, w- I wanted to make sure other people are on board and uh, know that the patient is receiving ketamine from us, et cetera. So we'd like to make sure we know that that, that the patient understands uh, that they have to inform the other sure. practitioners and that we're in communication if we need to. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's a perfect segue into you know what we're currently doing now with regard to our treatment process and protocol. So mm-hmm. when someone first reaches out to our clinic, you know, the, I'm typically the pers- the first person that they interface with. So um, they'll you know they'll reach out. I'll send them some preliminary information about our treatment process, the protocol, and pricing. They send us back some general information about themselves, and then I get them set up for a consultation with you, Dr. Tadros. That's right. And I. Um, I, I know that some of the, 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 main, the main purpose of that conversation is to really get to know the patient, understand what's bringing them here, what they've tried in the past that has or hasn't worked for them, mm-hmm. getting that kind of holistic healthcare picture of them as well, learning about their support. That's right. And then ultimately you can determine in partnership really with the patient mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if they're going to be a good ca- candidate for ketamine treatment. So That's can you right. tell us more about um, what patients, what that consultation is like? Yeah. I, I approach it from an internal medicine standpoint with mental health attached. So I um, oftentimes the patient's there with a loved one, relative, friend. Um, so what I'm interested in is uh, 
literally everything. I mm-hmm. spend about an hour and a half, sometimes up to two hours uh, in one session, the first session. Yeah. Which um, amazes people, by the way. Like every, ju- is, just okay, like the, Dr. Farugi's patients would come back to him when they're, he's referring to you as an internist. They come back to me and say, I've never had a doctor sit, like actually listen to yeah. me and talk to me for that long. So I, that's I, medicine I, even I, in and of itself, just saying. Oh, so you know. thanks. But <laughs> I, I, see, I see all the stories. All the patient's stories are intertwined. I right. can't differentiate. I can't just talk about, let's just talk about depression. Don't tell me about anything else. So I'm interested in everything. I'm interested in, uh, in, in where they live and who they're married to or if they're single, if they have partners, if they work, if they're disabled, if they go to school. Um, I, I'm interested in their substance use or abuse. I'm interested in their family history. I'm interested in medications, allergies, surgical history, uh, uh, past medical history for all other non-surgical yeah. stuff. Very comprehensive. Um, so I'm interested in all these things. I'm also interested in how they perceive themselves, how they perceive their disease, what, what, um, how, uh, what they would do if they felt better. Um, and sometimes I'll, with their permission, I'll ask the, the relative who's sitting next to them or their friend or stuff, what do, what do they see or what do they have, what the, have they witnessed? Um, because sometimes, well, all of us don't have total insight in our, into ourselves. Sure. Um, and certainly whenever people are, have significant mental illness, it impacts their ability to have um, insight. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, at the beginning of any every, any any consultation, I, I remind them I'm an internist. My partner's an anesthesiologist. We're not psychiatrists. We're not talk therapists. That's why I want to make sure that you have good people, good team members that are helping take care of you, and we mm-hmm. add on to their care. And we're using a tool, ketamine. It's not a cure, uh, but it's, it helps. Uh, it can potentially help uh, treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. uh, anxiety. PTSD, uh, 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 panic in some people, and OCD in some people, and some chronic pain patients, especially uh, people with neuropathic pain. Can you say can you say something more about treatment resistant? What does that What does that really mean when you think about treatment right. resistant? What do you mean? There's not a very hard definition, not not a very solid definition. Typically, it's two drugs, oftentimes in different classes, different mechanisms of action, uh, that you are able to get to full doses, which typically takes anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Mm-hmm. And if you fail two drugs, if fail to get response or remission from your depression, that's what we'll call t- treatment resistant. Mm-hmm. So two drugs. Yeah, uh, a lot of people come to us with have tried dozens of yeah. different doses and mixtures of medicines. Right. Um, sometimes ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which is shock therapy, uh, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is magnetic therapy. Uh, so they they uh, inpatient stays. So uh, sure. many patients have way way exceeded their uh, quote unquote treatment resistant uh, uh, hurdle. Yeah. Occasionally, we'll have patients come to us who this is kind of like their first. A attempt to really treat their mm-hmm. their yes. mental health issues because they may have heard about ketamine That's being right. very different from typical uh, antidepressants that sort of thing. Why why are ketamine infusions not necessarily going to be the first line of defense for treating something like yeah. that? Yeah, uh, like I mentioned, it's not a cure, and neither is Prozac, etc. So some people can spontaneously with. Uh, I'll say, let's pick 100 patients who are depressed in the United States without anything else, without anxiety, et cetera. Um, the, about 70% of those people can get better with talk therapy, exercise, sometimes medications. So they don't need ketamine. And um, and uh, you can sometimes be on Prozac and talk therapy for you know six months to a year and and go into remission and sure. may not need really medicine for, mm-hmm. for, for ever or for quite a while. So you really don't need ketamine for that. 
yeah. uh, that type of person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, are there, um, is there anything that would disqualify someone from, mm-hmm. you know, doing ketamine treatment, any sure. medical conditions or addiction, anything like that? Sure. The easy ones are uh, active psychosis. So these are people uh, who are schizophrenic, who are, are not well controlled. It's not that schizophrenics can't get depressed. It's that if they're actively psychotic, which is loss of touch with reality, those people should not receive ketamine. Okay. People who are manic in their bipolar disease. Now, once again, bipolar patients are, uh, the old term was manic depressive or manic mm-hmm. depressive. Uh, uh, manic depression and um, and if they're manic uh, they should not be receiving ketamine right now a lot of the bipolar uh, patients become depressed and persistently depressed and they Mm -hmm. can't get out of it and those people what we call bipolar depressed the depressed part of the bipolar disease can receive ketamine carefully Uh, those are the big ones the other ones that we've we've chosen in our uh, practice uh, is people who are are actively addicted uh, to alcohol narcotics are actively uh, uh, have uh, have problems with 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 addiction. Those patients we've chosen not to treat while they're actively addicted. If they're in remission uh, and have depression, uh, then yes, we can uh, treat them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's generally that's how right. I kind of approach it. But we're not we're not using ketamine to transition someone off of an addictive substance as like right. a first starting point for treatment of addiction. Right. So totally different ballgame. There are there are some studies being done uh, uh, for those of alcohol and, and narcotics, and we we are not uh, we do not claim to be able to. Uh, help patients uh, as effectively because some of these patients need multidisciplinary care and an inpatient right. care, and right. that's that's a that's a big deal. Which we're, just isn't our setup. We're yeah. purely set up as an outpatient. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, how how would how would you describe our scope of treatment? Like, why? Mm-hmm. I know we we kind of intentionally keep it pretty narrow. So mm-hmm. how how would you describe it? We uh, what we focus on is is the is the uh, treatment resistant depression. Uh, generalized anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive, panic disorder, and uh, some types of chronic pain. Uh, we do not prescribe or refill people's a- a- anything else. Their blood pressure medicine, mm. their 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 Xanax, their Ambien, any anything else. That's why they should have their regular uh, physicians or nurse practitioners or physicians assistants still continue prescribing that. So uh, so we've 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 narrowed our focus just to the ketamine that we we administer within within our four walls. Sure. So I've got a question that I want to throw to both of you too, um, because I, you know, we we were kind of speaking before we started recording the podcast about some of our points of difference, like what makes our practice different than maybe some other um, places mm-hmm. that are using ketamine. Um, how, what would you say our our goal is for patients? Like, are we are we just trying to help somebody's depression get better or to feel less anxious? Mm-hmm. What kind of actual improvements are we looking at? And I hear you all ask ask these questions about functional improvements all the time after infusions and after you know treatment. So what what would you say is our our goal in treating patients? Well, when I talk to patients before uh, our first infusion, I do a little mini consult, if mm-hmm. you would, for about half an hour to forty five minutes to set some expectations of sort of what they should feel and expect immediately during and after the infusion. And one of the analogies that I use is that. You know, ketamine is not a magic wand. It's not mm-hmm. a potion that we're going to you know, sprinkle on you and um, it's just going to fix everything. So I, I want to make sure they understand that. But what I do tell them, uh, again, kind of using an analogy, set their minds up uh, for the expectation, is that ketamine will give you a, kind of a brief opportunity to shed some light and uh, find the doors out of your darkness that you're in and get out into the light. It gives you a temporary 
reprieve uh, of the situation here, whatever that situation mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. uh, to make changes, uh, solve issues that have been lingering and weighing on you, personal, family, things like that. So the way I look at it is giving them that, that brief moment. Um, the other things that, again, I've seen through anecdotally through some of our patients that during these infusions, both during the actual infusion, the period right after it, is um, they kind of clean house in their mind. You know, mm. let's say they've had long-standing uh, traumatic experience as a young person mm -hmm. 50, 60 years ago. They're able to unravel that, forgive themselves, forgive others, and unburden, you know, leave that weight down. You know, all these things I tell them, all these things are just nerve cells firing. Yeah. And you're right. trying to stop a certain group of nerve cells that are weighing you down to stop and replace them with some good you know, subroutines in your head. Yeah. So ketamine, I tell them, allows you a, a temporary uh, kind of reprieve from that to do those things that you need to do. Uh, you just mentioned it a minute ago about physical activity. I say during my talk before the infusions, uh, there's two musts. I give you homework. One is physical activity. If you don't do it, start it. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something, pick up something different. If you do weight training, uh, do yoga um, and vice versa. But mm -hmm. do some physical activity because I believe that that will lend to some new circuitry firing in right. your head. Mm -hmm. And then number two is do creative stuff. Do something creative. Uh, we're all born artists. Uh, it doesn't need to look pretty. You want to sketch something, do it. Just go to a hobby store, buy some pencils and paper and do it. Uh, if you know nothing about music, learn music. There are apps. You can learn to yeah. play a keyboard. But do something creative. In fact, that's my advice to everybody, honestly, um, to learn new things. We get kind of comfortable after the age 30. We know what we know and we can coast to the rest of our lives mm. without really learning anything new. Even in medicine, continuous medical education, we're learning more of the same. We're not learning different things. So I always encourage people, become uncomfortable, learn glass fusing, mm -hmm. <laughs> silversmithing, yeah. sketching, digital art, get uncomfortable and learn new things. And that leads to fresh new circuitry in your head to replace whatever is bringing you down. So again, short answer is ketamine allows a brief light uh, into the darkness mm -hmm. and you have to work at that right. to get out of it. Okay. So, so Vafa described like three or four or five topics. Neuroplasticity is what he's talking about. And we believe that like we, anybody who wants to learn violin or anything, it doesn't have to do with anything with depression. But if you want to, uh, to learn how to cook, uh, et cetera, learn a new language, you have to lay down new circuits mm -hmm. and you reinforce mm -hmm. these over and over again. That's practice or focused practice. Mm -hmm. And you get feedback and so you can improve your practice. And that's, uh, so that's the neuroplasticity that naturally happens. We think ketamine may accelerate some of this natural neuroplasticity. And then Vafa is essentially saying, we don't want this to be a passive experience. Right. Here, Dr. Tadros and Dr. Farugi, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you money. I'm gonna lay down. Just give me give IV. Me give me yep. an IV so I can just feel better. And uh, although that's part of what can happen, it certainly is not the maximum that you can get out of the experience if you don't do something active like Vafa mentioned. Uh, we we it's the same thing with heart attacks. I tell people I can give you Lipitor after mm -hmm. a heart attack. I can make decrease your risk of a future heart attack. But boy, if you continue to smoke and drink and all that stuff like that that Lipitor is not gonna work nearly as well as if you helped it work. And that's what Vafa is saying, help the ketamine work. Uh, decrease or, or stop bad habits, bad bad uh, behavior that's unhelpful, uh, that sometimes is learned mm -hmm. uh, because you feel so crappy with your depression or your pain or your anxiety. 
um, and uh, you're laying down new circuitry that it takes months to sometimes years to, to, to get some of the, the to get the maximum benefit of, of, of all this stuff, your medicines plus uh, all your habit changes. Right. Um, I remind people that with any psychedelics, we can talk about this later, This, although ketamine is technically not a psychedelic drug, it has some psychedelic-like experience, a dissociative mm-hmm. anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the type of drug uh, that, that, uh, that, we, that we can talk uh, that that uh, affects the experience, the mindset uh, mm-hmm. and the setting of intention, right. and then the setting, which is the, the physical space, and then the dose that we choose to, uh, with the patient. So right. several things help determine the experience, um, how pleasant it is, and, and what Vafa says that uh, he alluded to, that sometimes your mind seems to be more open during or shortly after mm-hmm. the experience to see yourself differently, see your problems differently, and be able to essentially self, self-therapy self is yeah. essentially what it is. Yeah. yeah. So this is a lot more than just, you know, administering a, a medication Absolutely. to patients. And I think that, you know, sort of gets to our, our biggest point of difference, which is just the time spent with patients to help set some of these expectations, That's help correct. patients come in with good intentions and have... Um, you know, realistic expectations about what their role is in this active healing Mm. process we're trying to engage people in rather than, you know, just passively coming in and receiving their medication. That's right. And, um, you know, I've I've said before on this podcast and, um, you know, in other places that, you know, I was a patient at this clinic back in 2017, too. And what Dr. Frugi was describing in in terms of, you know, that that temporary reprieve from Mm -hmm. the, you know, those sort Mm -hmm. of stuck mental processes. That was totally something that I experienced during infusions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the importance of neuroplasticity. A lot of depression is getting and anxiety is getting stuck in a thought loop. That's right. Um, that becomes a you know maybe a, a thought distortion that becomes self fulfilling because it just replays over and over and over right. in your brain. Um, the a, a common example of this is just like persistent low self worth. Mm-hmm. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. Nobody cares about me. That's and right. that can that can feel so loud in your head. Um, so that during an infusion of ketamine a lot of that noise can mm-hmm. quiet down for a little bit of time. Yes. Um, and it sort of is accompanied by a quieting of your body. The mm-hmm. sensations in your body are, are different and separate from what you're normally experiencing yes. when that negative thought loop is going, which allows you, you know, that moment of space and rest to sort of take a new perspective on some of the old issues that have troubled mm-hmm. you before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the hope then is that people can capitalize on some of the traction that helps that comes from these ketamine infusions. Yes. That was my personal experience too, that it was getting some really real benefit during the infusions to get that fresh perspective on myself, which helped me keep moving forward with healthier behaviors, drinking the momentum, less, right. the momentum to, to keep moving forward. So. And, and uh, one of the things, and we've not said it out loud, but one, and I mentioned to both of you recently, one of the things I hear, I've heard probably four or five times, um, um, patients with one infusion, not, not necessarily from our clinic, but, but uh, elsewhere and also in our clinic, their, their first infusion, if they've had suicidal thoughts, that mm. seems to be the first thing that seems to improve yeah, that, that, that noise in their head about low self-esteem, that, that there's life is not worth living, seems to go away uh, probably the first thing. Uh, that seems to go away, and which uh, what an in, that's incredible. That's a in big itself. weight off that people's is, shoulders, yeah. right? And that's the scariest. That's the scariest aspect of any of the 
chronic pain patients or depression or anxiety, all these people are at higher, higher, higher risk of suicidality, certainly suicidal thinking, even if they don't yeah. act on it, than suicidality. So that's, I want people to understand whether it's us or another clinic, or, uh, but there's, uh, that there are, there, there, there may be some, some relatively quick relief. Yeah. Um, not for everybody, not every single sure. time, but yes. Right. So we, we kind of, we kind of backed into this <clears throat> discussion about our protocol, but I'm hoping you guys can talk more about this now. So someone's approved for ketamine. You think they're going to be a good, um, candidate for mm-hmm. treatment, Dr. Tadros, then what happens then you hand it more off to Dr. Frugi and, I hand and them the back nurse to you Aaron. So you can schedule well, yes, them. to me, so I can <laughs> schedule. Yes, for sure. Um, but then the treatment protocol, number of infusions, how often? You want to talk about that? And so Dr. once they Fury? get scheduled uh, <clears throat> uh, for the clinic, we schedule all six because timing is critical. Uh, most first clinic, is six. So I don't think they, people have heard that. Yeah. yeah. So the study, the original studies was done with six infusions. And, um, you know, that's, I tell patients, it's not a magic number. They probably looked at a, a few different uh, approaches and they felt like uh, by the number four, you know, if they did a thousand patients, for example, people were still getting better uh, after the fifth. So let's keep going and see where there's no longer any return on, you know, benefit of getting these people more infusions. So mm-hmm. they arrived at six. Um, some people may get, we've had patients who've gotten better with one infusion and they're mm-hmm. one undone. And, but we still continue to do six. So our protocol is six infusions over three weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, some clinics do it over two weeks. Um, I think the the last time we went to a meeting, it's about half the clinics do it in three, half the clinics uh, do it in two weeks. We do it in three weeks. Um, when they come in for their first infusion, I do have about a 45-minute conversation with them. Um, I definitely want the loved ones, partner, parent, you know, spouse uh, in that 45-minute infusion. And uh, I do look at, and I make a bit quick observation, the first 30 seconds of their body language. It is very important for both the patient and their support to be all in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, when we've had patients who either dropped off midstream or really didn't get improvement, uh, looking back, it's been the times that this, their support person, let's say spouse, uh, was not in it. Their body language, they're turned 45 degrees away, their arms mm-hmm. are crossed, they're looking up at the ceiling. So um, I, I do look for that. Uh, of that support person and then same thing with the patient sometimes patients come in you know uh, because their spouse is tired of it and they yeah. said you have to do something right. this, we can't go on like this so the body language uh, is very important the attitude the tone of voice the mm-hmm. kinds of questions so uh, and then i talked to them for about 45 minutes setting the expectation and giving them homework like i said earlier about physical activity about creative stuff and then also telling them that to stay hopeful in the sense that I tell them if I bring a thousand patients off the street randomly and give them ketamine, a lot of them will feel better Yeah. for a little bit of time, sure. a few hours maybe. Part of that placebo effect. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's real. It's it's an upper. It's like sure. acts like an upper. You're like, I got more energy, yeah. it seems like. Uh, but they will get better, but then they will get worse. And the next infusion will get them a little bit better, but then get worse. So imagine a sawtooth graft. You go up a little bit, and then you come down. Then next time you go up a little bit and come down. I tell them the slope of that is difficult to predict, i.e., how many infusions will it take for you to have, a, let's say, a 50% improvement. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's difficult to predict. We've had uh, headed out of the ballpark with one infusion. We've had people 
um, mm -hmm. come in for multiple infusions before they have that eureka tipping moment. If you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So I tell them not to give up hope because a they go home, they feel amazing that evening. Next day, boom, they're down, uh, and that's sometimes devastating. They get hopeful for a few hours and they step back. So my goal during that 45 minutes is to not only tell them what to expect the nuts and bolts of what the infusion will be like and where sure. we sit, where they sit while they will watch, but also really more importantly, hang in there, be hopeful and optimistic. So um, it's, a, it's a good long conversation. Um, I Then uh, we take the patient back to the infusion room uh, while they're getting set up. I go back to the, the other person, the, the parent, the, the spouse, and I speak with them temporarily. I, did you have any questions you didn't want to ask mm -hmm. in front of the patient? Yeah. And sometimes I get additional information. Um, and so I always give them an opportunity to say something sure. without the patient being present. Um, and then we go and start uh, putting monitors on, mm -hmm. and um, we have a, a nurse that the kind of tag team, she and I tag team the patient get monitors on, start an IV, get some baseline vitals, and then we're lined up for the runway, ready for the yeah. the trip, if you will. And we start the infusion. Yeah. Um, 15 minutes, it takes about 15 minutes to get the patient hooked up and IV started. Then the studies were done on a 40-minute basis for depression, so the infusion is exactly 40 minutes to the second. A pump automatically shuts itself off. Uh, we continue to give patients fluid, backup fluid, if you will, hydrating them a little bit, uh, even after the infusion has stopped, and they um, recover, if you will, and that recovery is variable. Our average is about 35 minutes. Um, some people are ready to go much sooner, but I want to keep them at least 20 minutes, sure. just kind of observing them. And then um, we do a quick questionnaire to kind of gauge the level of dissociation, and we can talk about that at some yeah. later point. But... Um, then we walk them out. They're going to be unsteady. I tell them, I warn them, they're going to be unsteady. Don't run out of the clinic. Mm -hmm. I tell them, go go straight home. Don't go shopping. Don't go eating. Right. Go home, rest, uh, eat something light, um, and uh, you know, take it easy for the rest of the evening. Sure. And then be, we see for the most part that people are like good to go the next day. Like uh, the mm -hmm. tiredness is worn worn off, and the right. you know any side lingering side effects. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about some normal side effects that people the most experience? things we have seen? I mean, if you look at uh, uh, drug inserts or studies, yeah. there is a list of thirty <laughs> things yeah. that could happen. Uh, but what we have seen is nausea. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get both nausea uh, sick sick to their stomach, if you will. Uh, both um, during the procedure or the infusion and then sometimes in the evening. Uh, being kind of sleepy a little longer does happen. It's difficult to predict. Right. I think age has a little bit of something to do with it. Um, but um, so those are the two things we see. Just was tired all night and sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. Very rare. I would say that's less than 5%, at least anecdotally, from our end. Sure, yeah. And as soon as someone does complain that, they, oh, they got sick the, the night before, we do add uh, kind of an anti-sickness medicine to the regimen. Sure. If they come in with a history of having sickness and nausea, mm -hmm. we go ahead and start that anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you ask all those questions during your preliminary consultation and everything, right. too. So um, how... How do you tell you you alluded to this a little bit, you know, the, that you're kind of grading the you're helping the patient grade their dissociative experience on a scale. Um, how what counts as a, a good infusion 
And then how do you make changes to the dose based on, based on that feedback that you get from the patient? Well, we do, we do observe the patient, for example. So throughout the infusion, we'll see how sleepy they are, mm -hmm. you know, what kinds of things they talk about or ask questions. That in itself, obviously, we don't want them necessarily to be too sleepy. Yeah, right. We do mm -hmm. want them not to be too fully awake, almost unaffected. Yeah. And so the, one of the beauties of IV uh, infusion is that we can adjust course uh, on the fly, yeah. real Instantaneously. time. Instantaneously, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. As opposed to other routes, uh, no, the other routes of ketamine, intramuscular or IM uh, ketamine, a nasal, those are very unpredictable, and uh, once you give it, you certainly can't take can't it take out. It back, yeah. You Absolutely. can always add to it, but then you know that becomes kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. But so we are observing them, how sleepy they are, how affected they are. We can give them additional uh, incremental doses um, to boost them up a little bit. Um, but uh, so again, that's uh, the main reason, uh, the main way of doing it during the infusion. And then once they recover and they're ready to leave, we do ask some questions. Um, it's a subset of a, a bigger questionnaire that we do that is, I believe the full questionnaire is 20 questions. We do a subset of them, selected questions, uh, to gauge the level of dissociation. Um, did time, for example, did time move abnormally for you? Mm -hmm. uh, did you see things out of your body, have a floaty experience, out of body experience? Mm -hmm. Did objects, sounds, or colors appear different to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, did you have any memory gaps? Uh, did you experience any intense emotions? Those are all yes, no questions. And if they answer yes, then we try to rate it. Kind of mm -hmm. yeah. Was it mild, moderate, severe, extreme? And, uh, you know, they we go with what they say. Sure. Yeah, even though we observe them to be a lot more intense in one of those questions, mm -hmm. we go with what they perceive yeah. that. Uh, and so we get a kind of a total score, and we let that score try to guide us. Uh, mm -hmm. If the score is too low, i.e. they were barely affected, mm -hmm. we go up. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, being an anesthesiologist, you know, safety uh, is very important and yeah. uh, actually is the number one. During my conversation, I say, I, say, I guarantee your safety. I'm hopeful about mm -hmm. you getting better. Yeah. But when you, I tell them, when you are here, you are my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister. My, mm. That's how I treat you family yeah and i genuinely feel that way about my patients um so we do increase we have a little protocol a stepwise protocol uh, generally our first six infusions are under that uh, protocol to begin with we have an escalating dosing uh, of protocol we start with 0.5 milligrams and mm -hmm. go up from there we plan to finish at 1.25 milligrams um per kilogram uh, per mm -hmm. gram. um so I would say about a third of the time we stick to that protocol. More often than not, we are going up a little bit more uh, quickly okay. to make sure the patients get the benefit of the dissociation. Yeah. Well, we don't want patients to waste their time and treasure, money and time, of not getting uh, the best uh, possible uh, experience during sure. the infusion. What Vafa says is that we believe, and other, other practitioners don't necessarily fa uh, agree, that we believe that part, that part of the dissociation, that's why we don't want them to be asleep, but part of the dissociation and their ability to, 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 to contemplate mm -hmm. uh, and, and see themselves differently right. is part of the therapeutic, therapeutic benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can can confirm that from personal and, experience. And th yeah, this has been uh, proven time and again in our anecdotal population. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, patients that come through and they always dread going to Thanksgiving uh, dinners with all the family because invariably a fight starts mm -hmm. uh, with a you know, a, a, a sibling that comes from a different state. And, you know, I do tell them, you know, 
I do kind of, a, I guess, a mini talk therapy. I don't, I'm not a talk therapist, uh, but I can talk. Uh, I have experience. I hear other people, so I share that experience. And um, they come back, you know, after one of those meals and say, you know what? I started, I started getting into that argument, but during one of the infusions, I was saying, how can I not play the same role in this play that I've mm. been an mm-hmm. actor of for years? Mm-hmm. I stopped myself. Right. I, it's just a simple few thousand neurons, nerve cells in your brain firing left versus firing right. right. And that's it. So during these infusions, you know, these people uh, that, that have trouble with different kinds of situations, let's call it the potholes of life. They develop shock absorbers that so mm-hmm. they don't break an axle as they right. drive through it on right. the road of life. They become more resilient. They they catch themselves. Mm. It, it they become more compatible with regular traumas in life that sure. we all experience every day. Yeah. I think uh, anecdotally, the patients who seem to do the best with us are the ones who are working on integrating those experiences that they're having during the infusions into real life scenarios. So just like you were saying, helping to utilize that neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. to, you know, make Mm -hmm. new thought patterns and new behaviors Mm -hmm. to change the role that they would normally play in some of these situations. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly critically important. All right. um, I'm going to hit you guys with a couple uh, to close out here, hit you with some frequently asked questions because Mm -hmm. I get all of the questions all the time. And I um, I think that uh, it'll it'll be great to just, you know, hear directly some of these answers so that people can, um, you know, refer back to them. So uh, let's start with the number one question. This is Mm -hmm. always the biggest question. Why does it cost so much? Why, are, why is ketamine infusion so expensive? Yeah, the ketamine, like I mentioned, is, a, is an inexpensive drug because it's generic. It's the delivery. Uh, whenever you have um, uh, a registered nurse, two, uh, almost all our sessions are two physicians there. Probably two-thirds, three-fourths of our mm-hmm. sessions are two physicians there. Um, the facilities, et cetera. So that's really what it comes down to is the delivery of the, of the medicine. Because it's, it's uh, not FDA-approved mm-hmm. uh, for depression, what happens is that insurance uh, do not feel the need to, to, to cover it. Correct. So it tends to be a cash pay uh, a treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably, um, that's been one of my biggest learnings and sort of mm-hmm. educating some of our patients too, is that not not every treatment that's available in the United States is FDA approved. And, and especially the ones that aren't FDA approved are going right. to be very unlikely to be covered by your insurance. That's so um, you can always call your insurance company and see, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, we, we, I don't think we've had any patients that have come to us that their insurance company is like, if yes, they, I'll go Sometimes they'll this. have something called an HSA or FSA or right. MSA, uh, so a health savings account or spending account. Right. And sometimes they can, uh, we can give you a super bill and, and they can get some money back. That's money that they set aside sure. pre-tax. So it's not really insurance, it's their own money. Yeah, absolutely. So. To put yeah. that in perspective, mm. uh, the price, you know, that if you go and buy a Subway sandwich, you know, the, the actual food cost is probably, I don't know, someone's going to probably correct me, but it's about 25%. Sure. So the yes. turkey and the lettuce and the bread, but, you know, 75% of it is um, everything else, yeah. the, the rent, the, the utility, the accounting, the legal, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the owner needs some uh, profit. Uh, so, you know, we were fortunate when we started that our biggest expense, which was our labor cost, was zero. Yeah. Our rent expense was very low. So, um, and, you know, I was very sensitive about that. We were both very sensitive about mm-hmm. cost. So, mm-hmm. you know, I did a survey um, and there was an article that came out in the, uh, back in 2015 and the range of 
per infusion was back then five hundred dollars to seventeen hundred dollars wow. per infusion. Per infusion, we wow. were well below yeah, that. Right. So when I did my survey, we were the bottom five percent nationally. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And really, we have not had any price increases since sixteen. Yeah. Um, so. Yes, it's expensive, right. but boy, we're down in the bottom again because we control. We don't, you know, we control mm-hmm. labor costs. Us, sure. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's a reason for the you know the the high cost. It's yeah, everything absolutely. else is that goes into it. The, sure. the ketamine is pennies. Yeah. Um, although now, by the way, it's really become more expensive as the supply has. Um, Kind of Demand, limited, yeah. Kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay. but yeah. all the disposables, labor costs, sure. all that—that's why it's so expensive. Yeah. So when you that's go, good. when you have, uh, you know, child labor, you know, delivery, you know, the average delivery in the United States is about nineteen thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. But you know, if you have insurance, so on and so forth, out of your pocket, it's a lot less. It's still nineteen thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, you know. it's still and it still is a, a lot of money out of pocket right, as right. well. Yeah. So people are used to having giving a, uh, d- their their insurance card and getting a twenty five hundred dollar copay and then they're yeah. done. Right. That's what they're comparing against. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think I know Dr. Tadros in your consultations, you're really good at helping mm-hmm. to contextualize where ketamine treatment mm-hmm. falls mm-hmm. In, falls in terms of cost sure. and in in terms of other treatments that maybe a patient should pursue first because co- well, cost is a real right. variable and a resource that has to be you know carefully considered I'm, I'm i'm very i'm very frank with the patients because not only is it the upfront cost for the six to for induction or the start but any boosters down the line yeah, so i want absolutely. people i never want people to be more stressed because they're trying to get better right uh, that's just yeah it's just it's, yeah it's yeah. anti-therapeutic yeah absolutely yeah. okay um here's another here's another frequently asked question I've heard that ketamine infusions don't work if you're on antidepressants or mm-hmm. other psychiatric medicines. Do I need to stop all of my other medicines to do this treatment? So there are three categories of, uh, of medicines that sometimes may affect the dissociation um, and sometimes, therefore the, the potential benefit. Dr. Frugi and I believe that we, you should stay on all of them and our rising dose protocol should be able to take care of some of, uh, some of that gap. The three categories are benzodiazepines, that's your clonopin and your Xanax mm-hmm. and your Ativan. Uh, the next one is your anti-seizure, uh, well, mood, uh, mood stabilizers. They're typically anti-seizure medicines, but also includes lithium, which is not an anti-seizure medicine, but also Depakote and uh, Lamictal. Mm-hmm. Those are, uh, and then the next uh, category is antipsychotics. That's your Zyprexis and Risperidols and Abilifies. Uh, a lot of uh, atypical antipsychotics that have come out in the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so those are the three categories of drugs that may interfere with your experience uh, Vafa and I uh, just find that we can we can uh, use the do- we can ma- manipulate the dose uh, for the ketamine to get you where we need you to be. Mm-hmm. In certain situations, if um, if you're on very high dose of benzos, etc., I may point that out to the patient. But I never want because almost all these patients have come to these doses, these medicines yeah. through slow, right. dif- difficult period, you know, right. uh, over time. So for us to have somebody hold it or stop it just would would not be, would not really work in, in real life. Sure. Yeah. And I think the patients may become kind of vulnerable in that period. Absolutely. Sure. As they're kind of weaning off or lowering. Well, they get I, worse. I worry for that. What, what happens is that they feel worse for a variety of reasons, both the, the depression or anxiety or whatever coming back, rebound sometimes. And then, then they say, well, the ketamine didn't work. Well, it's because you're, you're also changing off of your other medicines or stopping your other medicines that had been helping somewhat. Mm, mm, so that's mm. what that's so then you blame it on ketamine not working and 
Yeah, but other, exactly. Th- other, other things were happening at the same time. So I think I hear two answers there. Ones that, um, you know, this... It kind of reinforces what you're saying about the importance of, you know, having a good psychiatrist or primary care physician that is, you know, regularly involved with you prescribing medications to do what they tell you to do as far as prescriptions. And then the the this, you know, the small chance or the small effect Mm -hmm. that those drugs might have on your dissociative experience Mm -hmm. with ketamine. We have a plan to mitigate that. And that is the dosing protocol. Okay, great. Um. All right, here's one for you, Dr. Frugi. Um, what is the worst thing that can happen to me during a ketamine infusion? And what if there's an emergency? Well, we are fully staffed uh, and stocked with uh, all emergency. We have basically a crash cart in the, um, in the clinic that is the same kind that you would have at a surgery facility. So we are ready for any kind of, uh, kind of adverse effect. But... Um, that's a that's a tough question to answer mm. you know because you know the, the worst thing that can happen to you is probably on your way to the clinic in a very bad car accident mm. so i mean i don't mean to uh, be funny about it but there are, anything can happen obviously uh, but we are very ca- cautious we're very careful the most common thing that we see that needs treatment from our end short of increasing or decreasing the dose of ketamine because mm-hmm. it's not affecting them enough or maybe a little too intense is really the slight increase in blood pressure that we see. Okay. 10 to 15% increase in blood pressure. Most people uh, absorb that kind of increase because mm-hmm. our our blood pressure norm- normally fluctuates. You know, if you put a blood pressure cuff on you while you're running on a treadmill or doing mm-hmm. workout, it's really high. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to live at that blood pressure, but it's really high during that time. But uh, on, on occasion, the blood pressure does, does go up, and we, yeah, since we have access intravenously, we do have short-acting blood pressure medicine that we kind of counteract that because we mm-hmm. really don't want to lower the ketamine if they're getting the good effect from it right. in the state of uh, kind of dissociation. Mm-hmm. So the most common thing we see is a slight blood pressure increase um, that we treat with temporary drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things are uh, sometimes nausea and vomiting. We have uh, right. Zofran, and, and the other thing is some people have headaches or who are ten, typically people who are already migraineurs, people who have migraines. Mm. It may be occasionally, although we can use it to treat migraines, some people who are, uh, so people who get tend to get carsick, seasick, that's the nausea and vomiting people. Uh, people had previous problems with anesthesia, mm. those are increased risk for nausea. And then mm-hmm. some people who already have a tendency for headaches can uh, can get headaches, and we treat that all, all on the spot. So, yeah, but additionally, I want to tell people that, you know, we are using this at such low doses. Right. Mm. Okay. Mm. And it's such a slow process. And it's going um, uh, through the IV. So we literally can, on a dime, stop. And within 60 to 90 seconds, you're, you know, whatever was happening is not happening anymore. So, sure. Uh, again, we're these guys, the patients are under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Every second we're watching them. So, mm-hmm. um you know, bad things in healthcare, for example, does happen when patients are kind of out of sight, out of mind, and something is brewing up and you don't notice it. Sure. Whether it's their oxygen level, things like that. We are watching these patients every second. Mm-hmm. Right. Every EK- heartbeat. Yeah, we have an EKG monitor on them continuously. A blood oxygen pressure monitor. Oxygen monitor, blood so, pressure uh, monitor. It, so. so it is... Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like Very driving. A, it's like a driving. A, it's like yeah. driving a car. Mm-hmm. Can I get into a fiery car accident? Yes. 
but I got to have my eyes off the road and texting or fall asleep behind the wheels. Yes, bad things can happen. Sure. So that does not happen. We got way too many eyes in the clinic mm -hmm. um, on the patient at every second. So a follow-up question to this then is some people are concerned that they can get stuck in a bad trip forever mm -hmm. or lose their minds or mm -hmm. lose their memory permanently. Those are, are not things that we're seeing in our patients, that's correct. correct? Yeah, that's important to differentiate. A lot of people come to us already with memory issues. Sure, yeah. Um, so whether they're elderly and have true dementia or pre-dementia type of setting yeah. or uh, mild cognitive impairment, that's one thing. But uh, the other thing, of course, a lot of people with depression have what we call pseudo-dementia, which is fake dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the other thing. So that's always a challenge. It's kind of de uh, depressed executive mm -hmm. functioning because they are, their mood is so right, low. Right, yeah. they're distracted, okay. they're depressed, yeah. they're, they're focused inward about their problems and stuff. And so they tend not to focus uh, about what people are talking sure. about, et cetera, so they can't remember. Right. right. And so that's, yeah. So no, we, we do okay. not see, we do not see any, uh, we've done it for six years, we have not zero, zero people coming back and saying, hey, this was a big issue. I recognize that some people uh, go get ECT uh, before, during, or after uh, seeing us, uh, electroconvulsive therapy in select patients, mm -hmm. and ECT, uh, depending on how it's done, uh, has uh, does cause memory issues. So we, you can have, have confounding or other issues coming up while they're getting ketamine or in between ketamine sessions. And, and I tell patients, uh, if they're worried about too intense, uh, too mm -hmm. intense of an experience, I tell them right. most often, it's me or the nurse reassuring them that you're okay, yeah, grounding absolutely. them, if you yep. will. And they say, oh, okay, I'm okay. And we kind of mm -hmm. get it back under mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. So that's first layer of uh, kind of uh, defense. Um, the next is if we have to, and uh, we pause the uh, infusion. Yeah, we absolutely. pause it. Yeah. And within seconds, within literally okay. seconds, they're like, okay, okay. And then we either reestablish the infusion at the same dose or occasionally we kind of reestablish it with a, a slower dose right mm -hmm. and then we also have a kind of an emergency drug if you will for a bad trip and it's just a benzo a short-acting benzodiazepine mm -hmm. called midazolam and a tiny amounts of that quickly um comes calms calm everything down so many mm -hmm. many layers and i can tell you i can count on um kind of one hand the number of times we've had to use a benzodiazepine for a patient based on the thousands of infusions yeah. that we've done. I would say 95% of the time, just a reassurance kind of reorients them, refocuses them, yeah. um, mm -hmm. and that's all we have to do. Yeah, yes. absolutely. All right, um, I've got two kind of like easier ones here and then we'll close out. So um, we get a lot of inquiries from parents, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, patients that have, you know, children and young adult children mm -hmm. um, who are, you know, have tried everything, lots of different treatments and mm -hmm. medications. So how old do you have to be for ketamine treatment and can we treat minors? We do treat uh, minors, with, uh, but they're specifically come to us from a pediatric and uh, adolescent psychiatrist. Okay. So 15 years, I think we've done 14, actually with 14 who turned 15 while he was with us mm -hmm. uh, many, uh, many years ago. He was a son of a physician. Uh, but uh, but typically it's 15 and above, and it's with with the, with the guidance uh, and continued care of a, a, a pediatric and adolescent psychiatrist. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. There's not any any physical or medical concerns about using ketamine on a on a younger patient or a smaller person or that's, anything like that's that. That's a very good question. Um, um, so a lot of uh, historically in psychiatry specifically, 
pediatric adolescents, and it's changed in the last few years, but pediatric adolescents, they t- tended not to do big studies on peds sure. um, and, yeah. and also pregnant women, separate issue. Right. And we don't take care of pregnant women at all. Yeah, we clinic. forgot to include that in things that would disqualify you That's if correct. you were pregnant or trying to become pregnant. That's correct. It's, yeah. it's not That's the right correct. treatment for you. That's correct. So, uh, so historically, psych- psychiatry tended not to do studies on, very, on young children. And they would extrapolate from adult studies about doses and effects on peds, which is not uh, the best way to do it. But people were afraid to do studies on, on uh, children. It's changed in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, because of ketamine's long history and it has been used in peds, they use it in, in, in ERs, et cetera, yeah. that, that we have not seen any problems historically with, with the pediatric population with ketamine use. Correct, absolutely. And I, th- I think, you know, too young of a child, you know, because how ketamine works, again, this is almost anecdotally, where they have to work through right. certain things. I don't think, right. a, and a, let's say an 11-year-old right. no, does have the experience they don't and have the maturity the executive function to, uh, understand. to deal right. with that, sure. oppor- right. to, to use that opportunity right. that can right. exactly. be afford. Yeah. So. Yeah. The 15-year-olds that we're seeing are, are, are physically also very mature, not yeah. mentally necessarily mature, they're 15-year-olds, but physically they're, they're mature. Yeah. So they, they are, they are uh, adult, uh, literally adult-sized. Sized, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last one would be, um, do I need a referral to get ketamine treatment, and does my doctor have to approve of my decision to try ketamine? So because we don't work with insurances, there no, there's no referral process uh, in the sense of a formal referral. Uh, and people can get referred to us by a friend or mm-hmm. a, a therapist, talk therapist or psychiatrist, that type of, uh, that's uh, perfectly fine. Um, and I missed this last part of the question. Yeah, does my does my physician uh, have to approve of my I, I, choice to do ketamine? Right, yes. I, 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 as we had said previously, I want the whole team on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mind necessarily speaking to physicians or therapists, right. et cetera. Uh, but uh, but it's it's important not to set up a wall uh, uh, or tension between the the patient and their regular physician Correct. or physicians or practitioners uh, because they've chosen to do something on their own. Mm-hmm. I think it's just bad medical care as an internist. Yeah. Uh, I think it's bad medical care to not have at least people say I don't know anything about it. I'll, I I you know I'll trust these people or let me call them yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, I I need. Yeah, we can't have more tension in people's lives and they already come to us with right and of course our our mm-hmm. role is is not to take over their never. their I'm, care never <laughs> like, yeah. we don't set ourselves up as that yeah. and we certainly don't right absolutely all right well i want to thank you both so much for joining us today yeah, i think this will be a really useful episode for yeah. a lot of people thank listening. you this was fun thanks for having yeah, me yeah good good yeah, a lot of yeah we kind of we kind of thought through some stuff and re, uh, it's interesting it's when you say it out loud you rehash things yeah it's good to reflect and tell the story and um i feel you know super proud to work on this team with you guys and i'm just very it's, grateful for well patients love you so we're, <laughs> we're, we're, which makes our lives better and so we're happy Absolutely. happy with the team with, Absolutely. With, and we with we love our, our patients yeah yep, aaron our nurse who's been with yeah, us yeah i want to give a years. shout out to Erin. she's yeah. a, she does her own little thing when with the patients. There's a number of patients that mm-hmm. she interacts with during the infusion, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. she's going to share some experience. You know, yeah, after so. doing thousands of infusions, mm-hmm. you pick up a little bit of something. And, you know, my goal is to share whatever I pick up from some patients and share it across the board with other patients. So Erin yeah, does a wonderful job. 
connects whether, with patients. Whether it's us or somebody else, uh, we believe that ketamine uh, may be appropriate for a lot of people out there yeah. who are suffering um, and that have been through traditional uh, uh, therapies and stuff like that. So I want whether because a lot of people are not within earshot of us, but hopefully they hear if they hear about it. Well, we, I just got somebody from Orlando, somebody a relative yeah. here, somebody from Orlando. We referred them to somebody to, to, to if it was appropriate, somebody down there to evaluate mm -hmm. her brother, but to to, to to do it down in Orlando, um, so that hopefully it relieves some suffering that couldn't be relieved in other with other techniques. Yeah. If you would like more information about what we do here at Midwest Institute for Hearts and Minds, um, and if you'd like to maybe see about becoming a new patient with us, please reach out to us at our website at midwestheartsandminds.com. Uh, you can read a lot more uh, information there about our treatment process and protocol. There's some frequently asked questions. You can also submit an inquiry there to us um, to get the process going on getting signed up for a consultation with Dr. Tadros. Uh, to see if you or someone you love might be a good candidate for ketamine treatment. Of course, we want your feedback and questions mm -hmm. and interactions with us here on the pod. You can email us at notyourdocpod at gmail.com. That's notyourdocpod at gmail.com. Um, Seth is working on a tight and tasty new website for us. Um, so that is going to be forthcoming. It's going to be kind of a, a clearinghouse for all stuff, not your docs. So we'll have all of our, right. ep our episodes will be posted there. It'll link directly to Dr. Tadros's blog, which is once again, the inspiration for the not your doc podcast. Oh, right. Just, just yeah. Ways to get rid of things out of my head. So I don't keep thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. But it'll be kind of a one-stop shop. And so we're excited about things to come. Um, thanks again, guys, for joining Thank us, you, Dr. Charles Tatros and Dr. Vasha Farugi. Thank you to Seth. I'm Vanessa, and we'll be back with you another time. Bye. This previous podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.